Welcome to BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. In this audio series, we examine big questions facing the global real estate industry and the economy at large. And we meet some of the people shaping the built environment around the world. Today, we're hearing from Jonathan Goldstein, the CEO of Kane International, a privately held investment firm with almost 11 billion under management. Kane was set up in 2014 when Jonathan joined with Todd Bowley, who's the part owner of the LA Dodgers and the LA Lakers. In the UK, Kane backs Maslow's co-working and members club in London, as well as the all-female members club, the Albright, which has locations in both London and West Hollywood. It also backs competitive socialising, which owns leisure brand Swingers, a concept which combines mini golf, cocktails and street food. It's also just announced plans to build a £1.5 billion student portfolio in the UK. Last week, it spent more than £500 million acquiring a UK logistics portfolio. But the firm's also making some major advancements in the US. Kane's behind One Beverly Hills, a 17-acre development in LA. It's also developing luxury hotels, residential offerings, as well as brand new offices in Miami, New York, and Boston. We talk about the projects in just a moment, but as I spoke to Jonathan on the day Russia invaded Ukraine, I asked him what he sees as the biggest risk to the global economy right now. You can't really get far away from that in saying what's the greatest risk at this point in time. I mean, unfortunately, you know, Putin's actions are going to undermine and create great instability. The question is for how long? No one really knows what his game plan is or what his desires are. He saw from Crimea that, you know, he'd take a short-term pain and then everybody would welcome him back and everybody would go to the 2018 World Cup and, you know, fate Russia and fate him as if he'd not invaded Crimea just a few years beforehand. And, and so, you know, what's the biggest risk at the moment? And sitting here this morning has to be that, doesn't it? Just look at the amount of money from Russia that's poured into politics in the UK over the course of the last 10, 15 years. You know, it's not as if people haven't been pointing this out for some time, but uh, it's worrying. It's very, very worrying. Um, you know, I, I don't want to revisit old arguments, and but you know, my strongest view argument for Britain remaining in the European Union was that from 1945 to 2016, when the vote was, we'd had the longest period of time in peace in mainland Europe, including Britain. And people seem to forget that historical success that had been created by creating that stability across mainland Europe. And obviously the nervousness is that this may destabilise that. So that has to be the biggest worry for all of us as we sit here today. Yeah, there does feel like there's a lot of looming instability. We're just coming out of the pandemic. So the last thing the British economy, let alone the global economy, needed was to wake up this morning to Russia having invaded the Ukraine. So you've got nearly 11 billion under management across office, resi, hospitality. Over the past two years throughout this crisis, have you ever, are there any areas of the business where you thought, wow, I really wish I wasn't involved in that? Well, obviously early on um, in March 20, I mean, the, the shockwaves through the world were obviously pretty extensive and hospitality looked pretty ugly, didn't it? But over time, um, hospitality has shown itself to be extremely resilient. And if you look at Miami, if you look at Los Angeles, you know, as a staycation areas of, of, of America, um, they've traded very, very strongly. 
So, you know, we've had certain, you know, you've had certain situations. We have very, very small exposure to retail. Hospitality looked ugly. Residential's always been solid. Offices, I've always thought that this narrative of offices are dead is way overblown. Well, all office owners do think that. Well, we're seeing it. I mean, um, in Miami, we're developing probably the premier office block in, in, in Miami. We're seeing it in London. We, we've, we've got two office blocks in London. Um, we had some vacancies. We received three offers this week. The, the activity levels also in Europe, we're seeing it. We have a development outside Munich, signed a very strong 20% pre-lease in the last couple of weeks. I think that the, the, the point about overstated is that you, you can't deny the fact that we've all changed the way in which we work over the last couple of years, hopefully for the better. Hopefully we've understood that actually the work-life balance, you can mesh the two. Um, but great businesses were not built by people sitting in isolated circumstances. And great careers were not built without people learning from each other, you know, thriving off each other and energizing each other. And Zoom is very much the loudest person in the room. I don't think it promotes diversity. I am convinced and I watch many Zoom calls where there's far too much mansplaining going on. The office is not dead. People need to be together. People thrive on it. I want to get into some of the details of some of the projects that you have in a minute. But I want to talk first of all, like looking back on the last year or so of some of the investments and the planning that you've made, you must be formulating some sort of theory about how we're going to live and how we're going to, how we're going to socialise, how we're going to work. What is it? I think one of the strong things that will emerge is health and wellness. I think into luxury, hospitality will be a very, very strong growth area as people will want to spend more money to enjoy themselves and to create that light and that air that they really felt they were denied during the pandemic. And I think in terms of, you know, just normal wellness and, 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 and sure physicality, people are going to ensure that they are kept as an average more physically fit than they were previously. So for me, that's a very, very strong theme that I think will come out. I think there's some other themes that we've already touched on that, that I think are, are unstoppable. And that's the, you know, the, the growth of the net, the growth of, of, uh, of the e-commerce world, the need for logistics hubs, the need for last mile logistics. And, and I think the third thing, I think, and I think this is an, this is a global problem that only business can solve, which is the issue of housing. And I think that um, business people need to be at the forefront of the resolution of what is becoming a global problem. Its own minor global pandemic, in a way, of the issue of homelessness, which leads to lawlessness, which leads to a denigration of, of the fabric of society, which has stagnated during the, the, uh, the pandemic period. And when you go to Los Angeles or you go to New York or you're in London, it's unacceptable to see the spread of wealth between rich and poor. It's unacceptable for me at the same time to be talking about the top end of the luxury hospitality, but not have an eye to the fact that when I go to Los Angeles, the amount of homelessness, or in New York, the homelessness increasing, or in London, homelessness increasing. And the only way that's solved is by the, the, the construction of more residential, more housing, 
which of course is an, both an opportunity, but it's also an, a, it's an obligation on all of us to ensure that society does not decay. And I am completely convinced, having been involved tangentially for a lot of my life in sort of the, watching people and being involved in these problems being solved, that these will not be solved by governments. Governments need to understand that they simply are incapable of solving these problems and they need to delegate and work in collaboration with the business leaders. Because I have yet to be in a room with leading property developers around this world who don't care about this issue. And I think we as business leaders need to take a lead in saying we can do more, we are prepared to do more, we're prepared to pay more. Taxation is not a bad word if you understand what your money is being used for and it's being used to solve some of society's problems. Our latest project is that we've adopted a young partnership with a group called XLP in, in, in London which works with children from underprivileged uh, uh, backgrounds and mentors them and helps them grow across many, I think six boroughs I think it is. And we're doing the same in America, we're doing the same in Miami. So yeah, Kane is trying to do its own bit in leading the way in, in making change. And uh, you know, I hope that makes a difference, but we can all do more. You have much hope that that's going to ring through. I spoke at a conference panel two weeks ago in Miami, actually with Barry Sternlich from Starwood and uh, um, the CEO of Digital Bridge and, and a couple of other people, Pam Liebman, the head of Corcoran as well. And, and I said very similar things, and, and there was wide agreement in the room that, 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 that yes, I, I, and this is a point that I think people misunderstand and, and underestimate, that most business people understand that this is not a situation that can be left to governments anymore. They're simply incapable of operating and dealing with it. And they also understand, as I said before, that often what's good for society is good for business. And I think this is a mantra that we need to really be pushing on. Let's um, talk a little bit about Prezzo, which is the pizza business that you bought at the end of 2020. I know that you said we're not, we're not buying it to close it. Was that a kind of a reaction that people had, that you're just going to shut this place down? No, yeah. I mean, when, when I was approached, which was actually in November 2020, it was clear that TPG at that point in time, who were the owners, had sort of given up the ghost with the business. Um, I think it was an asset that was at the end of a fund. They'd done phenomenally well, presumably, in the rest of their investments. And I was approached and I met Karen and I liked her story and I liked what she had to say. It was an unusual, somewhat brave, I guess, that people would think, uh, exercise at that point in time. But it's uh, proved to be successful. But uh, fundamentally, it's down to people. What did you learn through being both a, uh, like a restaurant landlord and a restaurant owner in that process? When we first took it over, we had two plans. We had a consensual plan and we had a non-consensual plan. And the consensual plan was much our preferred route, but that involved having sensible landlords involved in conversations. I, I think what, what, what happens is that, that, that most people you know, again, don't look at it from the other person's point of view. And we dealt with landlords who simply would not accept the reality of their situation. So we had to make that decision for them, which we did in February of 21. So I think that 
the most important thing for me as a landlord when I look at our tenants is to keep their businesses going and to ensure that they have an environment in which they can thrive because a dead business is of no value to anyone, let alone me as a landlord, let alone the, the owner of the business. But I think most people you know, didn't necessarily look at that in that way early on and, and thought that they were, you know, because there was now a stronger shareholder behind it, that they would pay any price or do whatever they would want, need to do to avoid um, making harsh decisions. But, and we made a decision and it proved to be a very good one for the business because it, it got rid of a number of underperforming sites that were never going to become strong. And it enabled the management team to focus on the brand, focus on its people, focus on its customers. You know, you're talking about a business that in an average week will do three to three and a half million pounds at 20 pounds a head. That's a lot of people. That's 150,000 people a week, right? So you're talking about keeping people happy in volume and ensuring that your pro product is quality and that you have consistency. But I, I enjoy that. I mean, I, I enjoy the interaction with people uh, in these businesses. I enjoy the fact that they understand that there are sensible people behind the business who are not just, you know, or, or ordinary, uh, you know, just looking for, their, for their, 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 their next pound, but people who actually care about the careers and individual trajectory of people to enable them to thrive and, su and survive and, and succeed. Last year, Kane invested 20 million US dollars in competitive socialising, which owns indoor mini golf concept Swingers. The funding is a follow-up to the 2018 investment of 38 million, and Swingers is now expanding into the US, with one open in DC and another on the way. It's also got a location coming up next quarter in New York City too. And Jonathan says the opportunities to expand in the American market are significant. We're growing further into the US, so we've got other towns lined up, leases being negotiated as we speak. We're hoping to have uh, another half a dozen open by the back end of 2023. It's just, a, it's just a lovely evening out. You know, it's fun, it's great atmosphere, um, you know, a welcoming environment, quality product. It just has everything going for it. And uh, when you come back and talk about what's its linkage to our business and how did we get there, you know, we've believed for some time in experiential um, real estate, that, that where real estate is, you know, where there's excess real estate around, the best thing to do is to create experiences with them and make people, you know, come to the buildings and make them attractive places to visit. So when you look on Oxford Street here, the old British Home Stores store, which went uh, bust a few years ago, well, you know, what a great redeployment of that asset into a swinger store on the first floor. So uh, it's a great example of, uh, of quality real estate being used by a quality business. And again, it's, it's down to people. I mean, Jeremy and Matt, who, who founded that business, they're just decent human beings. They're quality, focused, knowledgeable. They don't really need much guidance from people like us. Where do you think the big areas of growth are in the US for that type of concept, particularly now that the pandemic has caused a lot of disruption in, in retail real estate? I think that if you can have concepts running in New York and DC that are both successful and Washington has been doing phenomenally well, 
this is a nationwide business. This has the ability to be in every major city in the US. You've also got a very ambitious project in New York, which I find very interesting, the Billionaire's Row spec office, um, which, as I understand, you provided most of the equity for that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can tell me about yeah, I mean, uh, what a, you're building? Yeah, we're building 17 stories of office. Why? Because, yeah, because I come back to what I said before. Um, I believe that coming out of the pandemic, light views, air, is very important to people in top quality areas. And I think that what we are looking for is 17 boutique, 10,000 square foot occupiers who want the last remaining view of Central Park. And I think that you'll see over the course of the next five years that we, you know, we both build and lease a quality product in the middle of New York. I'm very confident about our prospects there. I think that the, the, the issue with real estate is that you can either follow the herd mentality or you can have conviction about location. When Todd and I sat down um, and said, okay, let's build this business, which was really in the middle of 2015 when we had an opportunity, we talked about we're gonna focus on gateway cities. And we're gonna focus on gateway cities at times when maybe other people, they're not so much in, 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 in vogue with everybody else. And our first play in 2016 was in Miami. Now, what was an Englishman doing going down to Miami in 2016, where we now have two condo towers coming up for completion in the next 12 months? We have a 640,000 square foot office block. We have 10 acres of Fort Lauderdale. We have another three towers coming out in Edgewater because we believed that people did not understand or were underestimating the quality of the opportunity within the Miami area. Now, it's fair to say we've been a bit lucky by the acceleration that the pandemic, but better lucky than clever in life. Um, but we also started off with a couple of challenging seasons because we had the Zika virus and we had a hurricane season, which, which you know, blew the fronts off many. We also owned the Delano Hotel on, on, on Miami Beach. And we're big, big believers in the Miami world. But five years ago, people didn't feel the same. You know, New York is the most resilient, has shown itself over generations to be the most resilient marketplace. Most resilient. And, uh, you know, there's too many people who have called time on New York so many times, so often. And uh, we, we believe that there is a resilience there and a strength. And we believe, obviously, that we have entered the this particular transaction at an economic point where the rents that we have to achieve are eminently achievable to provide a very sensible and good return for 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 Kane. What rents would those be? Well I'll I'll leave the market to find out when we get there. In Miami, Kane's office tower 830 Bricknell has landed leases with the likes of Microsoft and CI Capital. The building is already almost half leased and is scoring rents at over $100 per square foot. Those deals come amid widespread angst through the pandemic that Miami is taking New York City's lunch, luring more companies and wealthy residents with better weather and fewer taxes. Do you think that people should be scared about Miami's success? I mean, I did a story last winter about how everyone was in Miami running their New York businesses from Miami. There's been a lot of talk about exodus to Miami. Do you really think there is a genuine threat that Miami presents to a place like New York? 
No, I don't think it's a threat. I think it's complementary. I think that Miami has its own challenges, which it's going to have to face up to. Not climate change. But climate change is one. Transport is another. Yeah. I mean, it has, a, city, it has a very challenged transport structure. Schooling is another. The more families and the more you know, businesses that relocate down there, I think it's really short of, of schooling. And it's very condensed. If you go on Miami Beach, it's, you know, the, the whole of the, the coastline's already overpopulated. I mean, it's, it's massively dense there. So I think Miami has its own challenges, but I think what you'll find is that it will grow up the coast. So obviously Palm Beach, if you go you know, an hour and a half north of, uh, of Miami, is already very, very popular. But in between, that's why we took a position in Fort Lauderdale. I think there will be a massive spill-off into housing and uh, you know, provision of schooling and, and, and businesses in, in the Fort Lauderdale area and growing up the coast there because there's just not enough room in Miami. Miami's actually quite a small place if you look at it in population terms compared to, certainly compared to New York or even LA. So I think that uh, it has infrastructural issues that it's going to have to deal with. And I think the answer will come up the coast more than it will come within Miami Beach itself or Miami itself because there isn't that much room left. Last year, Kane scored 500 million in financing for One Beverly Hills, which is a 17.5 acre development in LA with the Waldorf, the Hilston, walk paths and luxury residential. Uh, we've been in partnership with Benny Allergen there since uh, 2017. Benny um, bought the um, Beverly Hilton in, the, in over 20 years ago and then built the Waldorf Astoria and we recapitalized that with him and then we funded the acquisition of the land the, uh, next to the, the, the golf course. And we now have a fully entitled program for a million square feet of buildable, including a new luxury hotel and, uh, you know, condominiums, 32-storey tower and 28-storey tower, the first time that people will be able to buy height in Beverly Hills, all centred around an environmentally friendly four-and-a-half-acre publicly available park. Our obligation to the city is to keep four and a half acres open. We own an 18 acre site there. And you know, the, the, these are conviction plays. And, and uh, you know, you're looking at a, 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 a town that some people think at this moment in time that politically Los Angeles is in a difficult place. But Beverly Hills is Beverly Hills. And these places, you know, they don't go away. And we're hugely excited, massively. Again, if you watch this space in the next few weeks, there'll be some interesting announcements about the Beverly Hills project in the next few weeks. Um, and we're hugely excited about what we're going to be doing there. We're proud of our partnership with Benny. Um, and, and we know that we can make a real difference to the environment there um, in, in, in what we're building, which is quality designed by, by uh, Norman Foster. When you talk about One Beverly Hills, I often, I'm often interested in how big master plans like this kind of stay in step with tastes and interests. Like, I'm thinking, for example, Hudson Yards was conceived several years ago, and when it was delivered, it was a little bit of out of step. There was a bit of a pushback against it in that was a mall really what the city needed, was more luxury residential what the city needed. How do you prepare a big project like One Beverly Hills to be in kind of staying in vogue and staying in step with what people and societies, governments want? 
Well, I think the first point I'll make is that from a technolog technology perspective, it's extraordinarily hard to keep up to date with the latest, with the latest moves. Okay? Things change so fast. So for me, you have to have a vision. You have to have a vision of a type of lifestyle you're looking to create within an environment and then build a product for the lifestyle, not, not the other way around. And I think that you know, we are building and will be building a, a lifestyle product for a certain type of person within Los Angeles, within Beverly Hills, which obviously is at the top end. I mean, you know, I make I, 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 I no bones about that, you know. It's not inconsistent with anything I might have said earlier. It just happens to be one of the products that we are funding. So, you know, you have to try and envisage. For me, the greatest test is would I want to be there? I'm not in, necessarily in that league. But would I want to be there? Would my family want to be there? Does it have the services and requirements that, that a, a range of generations would want to enjoy? And if you can do that, and if you can provide that, that offering, then I think people will come and people will enjoy it. So you have to try and think forward as to how you would wish to live your own life and try and build a product around that. That's Jonathan Goldstein. He's the CEO of Kane International. We've got more stories about Kane's work on our website. Our Birmingham reporter, David Tame, wrote about competitive socialising last year. That's the parent company of Swingers. I'll leave a link to that story in our program notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.